Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, let's get into part two of the story of Gunnery Sergeant John Bassalone. A quick 10-second summary of what we talked about last time. Then Sergeant Bassalone would be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions during the Battle of Henderson Field that took place during the Guadalcanal Campaign in the Pacific Theater of Operations during World War II against Japanese forces. So during that battle, there was a 3,000-man Japanese force that assaulted the American lines around Henderson Field in October of 1942. John Bassalone, then a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps, was leading a two was leading a two machine gun section, suffered heavy casualties and manned those guns, killing you know in the hundreds of enemy fighters by himself, repelling that attack and being awarded the Medal of Honor for doing so. He'd be named the you know quote hero of Guadalcanal. He became an American legend. This was a time where we needed wins. This was a time where where America was looking for something to cling to. Remember we'd we'd suffered the defeat at Pearl Harbor less than a year earlier. We didn't really, we had the battle of Midway, but we didn't really have a land victory. We were pushed out of the Philippines, pushed out of Guam. This was it. We needed a hero. American had one. Sergeant John Bassalone, the hero of Guadalcanal. He's pulled home to the United States to help the war bond effort. The idea being to, the Marine Corps wants him to be a face, not just for, um, to sell war bonds, of course, and to help the war effort, but also let's get some more people to enlist see a real life hero. Let's have him talk about what he's done, talk about his exploits. People wanted to hear this, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like it sat well with Barcelona. It doesn't feel like traveling the world as a celebrity really fit his personality. And you reading through it, it feels like there's a, a, a hint of guilt. Like he did his job, other people died, and now he's home living a pretty comfortable life. And I don't know that he would have asked for that. There's nothing to actually, I'll put this another way. There's nothing to suggest that he ever would have asked for that. He just got it. He starts asking pretty early on, I want to get back with my men. And by his men, he means combat Marines, somebody back in the fight. This is 1942, 1943. It's still very early in the war. There's a lot of battles to be had. He knows it. And you can understand this feeling of guilt, this you know, you can look at him and say, hey, you've done your part. Take a knee. Relax. Let somebody else charge that, you know, charge that next beach. Let somebody else repel that next Japanese attack. But I can understand his point of view of, yeah, but I've done it. And I know what it takes. And I know how to do that. Don't let somebody else learn the hard way. I can go teach, lead, do. I could see how that would weigh on him. And it sounds like it did. It, it's incredibly noble. I mean, he's got, if he wants to, his war is over. Easily. In fact, he's having to push to get back into the war. So a better way to say it is his war is over. And he's saying, no, it's not. I've still got something to do. He pushes and pushes and pushes. And eventually the Marine Corps lets him get back into the fight. They let him back into the fight and he joins the 1st Battalion, 27th Marines, as they prepare to take Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima 
is a new stage of the war. There's a few battles towards the end of the war that just turn incredibly bloody. Iwo Jima and Okinawa. In February of 1945, Iwo Jima would be the the place where the Marines would land. At this point of the war, the Japanese are on the defensive. The Americans have landed within, the Americans are within bomber range of the Japanese mainland. So we can hit Japanese targets, but there's a problem because those bombers don't have fighter support all the way through. Bombers are slow. They're, um, I mean, even although no, although dubbed sometimes the flying fortress, they, they can be relatively easy targets for a nimble fighter plane, nimble enemy fighter plane. In a perfect world, bombers have fighter escorts and those fighter planes are trying to fend off enemy fighters so the bomber can drop their bombs. We can't do that over Japan right now because the bombers have a longer range than the fighters, so they can hit the Japanese targets, but they don't. Ha- but the fighters can't make it all the way there. The fighters are smaller, have smaller gas tanks, have smaller range, have shorter range, and they just can't do the same trip. So there's a big risk right now at running bombing missions over mainland Japan. Iwo Jima has a landing strip on it. That landing strip is sufficient for American fighter planes that could accompany these bombers over Japanese territories. So. The main thought with taking Iwo Jima, named Operation Detachment, would be to provide a landing strip, an airfield, for U.S. fighters to help as the bombing war continued to push closer and closer into Tokyo, the Japanese mainland. This is also a new time in the war in that we now know how the Japanese forces fight. We've been, you know, with Guadalcanal being one of the really the first major land battle, the U.S. now has experience in a couple different ways. We understand how to conduct amphibious operations. Guadalcanal, remember, was codenamed, not codenamed, was jokingly named Operation Shoestring because it kind of sounds like we swagged it. We're a lot better come February 1945. And by the time American forces hit the beach on on February 19th of that year, it's, it's almost complete allied air superiority, naval superiority. It is a complete turn from Guadalcanal. If you remember, in Guadalcanal, the Japanese forces were reinforcing that island constantly. They decided at some point to walk away from Guadalcanal. Now, they'd suffered incredible losses, but there was a point where they said, well, we're just not going to keep resupplying it. We're going to shift our focus elsewhere. They don't have that option at Iwo Jima. The soldiers on Iwo Jima, and this this isn't the first time it's happened. It happened on Saipan. It happened, um, Tinian. It happened on a few more islands before this, a few more campaigns before this, but the soldiers on Iwo Jima, the Japanese soldiers on Iwo Jima, they're going to have to, there's no resup. There's no resupply. There's no support. And what you're going to see on Iwo Jima is what is, there's no other way to describe it. It's a fight to the death. There are 20,000 Japanese defenders on that Island. When the fighting is all said and done, it'll take about a month. There will be fewer than 300 Surrender or captured. That is the definition of fighting to the death. Those 300 that are captured or surrendered, many of them were unconscious or so wounded that they couldn't do anything other than be taken prisoner. That's crazy. And the, and that, that, that wasn't an accident that was done on purpose. The Japanese commander of the Island 
decided that they were going to do things differently. He said, we're going to make every Japanese life count. And that sounds harsh, but what he's getting at is that rather than do these, these suicidal frontal assaults that potentially overrun American lines, but also sacrifice massive numbers of your troops, we're going to dig in. We're going to dig in and we're going to, we're going to make each Japanese life cost multiple American lives in the process. And that's why the battle and the fighting on Iwo Jima is so fierce. By the time of the American landings, there's 11 miles of tunnel dug across an eight square mile island. It's a tiny little island. Try to find it on a map. It's, it's, it's hard to find. It's just a little speck in the middle of the ocean. One of the other things the Japanese defenders do is they decide to focus more of a defense in depth. So rather than, th- when you think of a defense in depth, Think if you have 100% of your defensive capabilities, you could put up a wall, put everything into that wall, 100%. We're going to stop the guys at the wall. Or you could put it in you know, five increments of 20% of your capabilities or 10 increments of 10% of your capabilities further and further back or 100 by one, right? So like there's ways to break out where you put your energy and what they did on Iwo Jima was you know, a ton of small pockets of resistance. So there would be a machine gun nest that wasn't necessarily mutually supported by anything else, but it was going to be a pain in the ass to the Americans because they were going to get through this position and then turn to their left and they'd have a new machine gun nest to deal with or two or six, or there'd be a hidden bunker where a Japanese soldier would pop up and throw a grenade. It was, it was hellish fighting. In fact, Iwo Jima would be the only battle in the Pacific where there would be more American casualties than Japanese dead by the end of the battle. So on February 19th, 1945, gunnery sergeant John Bassalone hits the beaches. He is leading a machine gun section. Remember, that's his specialty. And the beach is an interesting scene. Because we don't have this wall right on the beach, he doesn't hit a, you know, doesn't run right into fire. The Japanese waited for the Americans to all hit the beach and then start to come inland, and then it just opened up. The idea being there's going to be more targets if we wait for the beaches to fill up and wait for the transports to come in, wait for the reinforcements to come in and then open up. It's going to be deadlier. So John Bassalone leading his men uh, across the black, soft sand of Iwo Jima. It was slippery. Somebody described it as trying to dig a hole in a barrel of wheat. So think about that when you or you couldn't dig a hole, you couldn't get down in it. And it was a, it was a slaughter on the beaches. There were a lot of Americans killed on the beaches. Sergeant Bassalone is moving across the beach and comes across an enemy machine gun placement. He single-handedly attacks this, gets to uh, on top, finds himself on top of the bunker and destroys it with hand grenades it's incredibly important. I mean, it's one bunker, but remember these bunkers were exacting crazy casualties from Marines. So his taking it out by himself was not only brave, but undoubtedly saved multiple lives of fellow Marines. He then, as they're moving forward, finds more and more of his Marines pinned down. There's fire coming from every direction. It's hard to tell where the Japanese line is. You just know that you're getting shot from everywhere. His guys are pinned down. There's an armored vehicle that's having a hard time navigating through the sand and the smoke And they don't know where to go. So he runs back, guides that vehicle, which is attracting a lot of enemy fire, guides that vehicle 
through the minefield forward so it can suppress the Japanese positions and relieve his Marines that are pinned down on the beaches of Iwo Jima. Moving forward towards the airfield, remember this is a tiny island. It doesn't take long for the American forces to at least be within sight of the airfield. Gunnery Sergeant John Bassalone is hit by enemy fire and killed at the age of 28. For his actions on the beaches of Iwo Jima, clearing that bunker by himself and moving that and maneuvering that armored vehicle forward to relieve the stress from his pinned down Marines, he would be awarded the Navy Cross. That would make Gunnery Sergeant John Bassalone the only enlisted Marine during World War II to be awarded both the Navy Cross and the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.